0: At that time, you tell me that monkeypox will be such a global issue today, I would not believe it. And I think there is hundreds of other issues that may be a global issue, but we don't know it yet.
1: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. In late August, health ministers from across Africa held a meeting in Togo in which they adopted a common strategy to confront health emergencies. The so-called Regional Strategy for Health Security in Emergencies commits African countries to concrete steps to strengthen disease surveillance, response, and preparedness. There are over 100 health emergencies in Africa each year including outbreaks of infectious and deadly diseases like yellow fever, meningitis, and Ebola. And it is sometimes the case that diseases endemic only in parts of Africa, like monkeypox, can spread globally precisely because of limited local capacity to contain an outbreak. This new strategy seeks to change that dynamic. On the line with me to discuss this new African health security plan and Africa's role in global pandemic preparedness and response is Dr. Abdul Salam Gay, WHO's Regional Emergency Director for Africa. We kick off discussing what COVID revealed about African health systems' ability to respond to a massive emergency. Dr. Salam then explains some key elements of this new regional strategy on health emergencies and how the successful implementation of a plan to confront health emergencies in Africa will have a global impact. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Abdu Salam Gay, WHO Regional Emergency Director for Africa. Could I have you briefly explain what weaknesses in the health emergency preparedness and response did COVID-19 reveal in African countries?
0: When COVID-19 arrived in Africa, outbreak was not something they didn't know. We have over 100 health emergency in Africa every year. On average, two health emergency per week. So the countries was uh, used to it, uh, but what happened is that uh, it arrived at the same time. The biggest weakness was in terms of supply chain. What we needed as a supply was needed by everyone at the same time. And given the weakness of our economy, we were not able to get the mask when it was needed. We were not able also to get the respirator when it was needed. And the vaccine when it happened, it was not a surprise that Africa was the last continent to receive the vaccine that we needed, there is also some other issues that we encountered during this uh, COVID-19 emergency that were mostly related to the health system. ICU is uh, something that was not on the normal primary health care. In most of African countries, they had less than ten beds of ICU in the country. So you understand that when they have an outbreak or when it become a pandemic, that were needing. 10 additional ICU bed every week was quickly over the capacity of the health system in those countries. Some country was have more uh, human resource and health workforce like uh, DR Congo or Nigeria because uh, of their experience, but also because of the size of their population. Other the countries that I know had uh, really very limited number of epidemiologists that were able to design the country response. So in order to really conclude on that, I think the first and most important issue we faced was in terms of supply chain of what we needed. The second was related to the case management and the third is health workforce in general that was different based on the country where you are.
1: So you mentioned that Africa experiences about 100 health emergencies each year, which breaks down to two per week. COVID was seemingly extraordinary. What are these more routine health emergencies like? Can you just kind of walk me through what some of these health emergencies entail?
0: The health emergencies mostly are outbreaks. Outbreak of vaccine-preventable disease uh, still exists like cholera, meningitis, yellow fever are still uh, existing. For example, as we are speaking, over 11 African countries have reported yellow fever outbreaks that are currently going on. There is also some other diseases like uh, Ebola that do not happen often, but when it happens, it has a big impact on the zone that it happened, but also on the country and the region where it happened because it's related with a lot of issues on traffic and people may have some reactions that are over-exaggerated, maybe the neighborhood, but maybe also some country outside. There's also a lot of uh, environment and climate related emergencies that are happening more and more. And each year we have some countries that are having flood. We have also some that are related to violence that are man-made or not man-made violence that are the health emergency. So overall, on the emergency that we are having in Africa, over 70% are related to outbreak and 30% are related to humanitarian emergency that may be man-made or not man-made.
1: So recently, health ministers from across Africa met in Togo and agreed to the adoption of a regional strategy on health security and emergency response. Can you walk me through what some of the key elements are of that strategy?
0: We need to learn from COVID. And we also have a lot of assessment that happened in Africa like the joint external evaluation had been done in all the 47 countries of WHO regional zone in Africa. There is also a lot of other assessment that were done. In addition to that, there is some global recommendation that happened because of COVID. Over 300 recommendation coming from G7, G20 or WHO organizer committee was to help us improve the way we are preparing for we are detecting and responding to emergency. Based on all those, there is a strategy that was drafted and a consultation was done before international partners with over 30 ministers in Africa. And we come up with a final draft that was submitted to the Minister of Health. That draft turned around four elements. The first element is to respond to the emergencies that are happening, as I told, two emergency are happening on average per week. And also we need to have funding that are available. We need to have resources and uh, operations that are already set when those emergency arrive. The second is related for preparedness. The preparedness is uh, promoting resilience of health system to be ready when there is an emergency. And it needs uh, assessment of the country where they are in terms of the international health regulation capacity and also where the country are in terms of response capacity. Also, it helps countries to develop national action plan for health security and to go through the implementation of those plan, notably to help them on the monitoring, evaluation, accountability, and learning. The third part of this uh, strategy is related to the detection. We want to support countries put in place effective surveillance system where it is at the community, where it is event-based and also it is indicator-based that can be collected and analyzed and reported. to. And finally, the fourth one, which is not the less important, which is uh, the surge related to helping the African country have 3,000 responders that are ready to respond 24 to 48 hours after an emergency. Each country would have on average 50 people that are multidisciplinary, multisectorial, and some countries have more than that because of their size. But also those teams, we want them to be interoperable so some country may be able to help others. So it is four parts into the plan that are first to respond to emergency, second to prepare, third to detect, and fourth to respond.
1: That's fascinating. So on this fourth issue, you're basically creating like a reserve emergency health force that is transnational across African countries in which, I don't know, like a responder in Ghana could be deployed to like Mali or something like that?
0: Exactly. And let's just start saying it is first for the country themselves. They should be able to respond to their own emergency. But in their own emergency also, sometimes they may be overwhelmed or they may have a specific need that they don't have. And some neighboring country can help them to respond to it. I think it is a win-win because uh, the country that are receiving the support will be able to control the emergency and get back to normal life. And the country that are help is for one way to prevent the emergency to arrive to their border. And when it arrives there, they're going to need a lot more effort. So currently the African country are really looking forward to it. And each of them, when they are thinking about developing their team, they are also thinking about how they will be able to help their neighbor or even beyond when it is needed.
1: I mean, so it sounds like this is potentially, if implemented, a really transformational strategy. But I guess my key question is, how will this be implemented? I mean, it's one thing to have a good strategy on paper. It's another thing for countries and and health ministers and the broader international community to actually embrace the strategy. and put it into action. What will it take next for this strategy that you say revolves around you know, four key issues, including preparedness detection, response? How will these issues be actually implemented in practice?
0: We did uh, some early implementation, and you can call it pilot, in five countries uh, just before the regional committee meeting. Mauritania, Niger, Nigeria, Botswana, and Togo. At each of those countries, when we arrived, we expected the government to support our idea. That's why we went there. But we were surprised about how high level people was looking forward to discuss with us and to find out a way to prevent what happened in COVID happening again in their country. In some countries I was really surprised to get a call that the Prime Minister want to see you. In other countries they asked us to go to the State House where we went and to see the level of commitment. And also, we tested, um, for example, the search. we were able to support member states recruit over 200 multidisciplinary and multisectorial people. And in emphasis, and we tried to push for having more women, having a gender balance. And in some countries, we successfully did it like Botswana. And also those uh, people were uh, trained, and the training was in four phases. Each phase was representing one of the core competency that emergency responders needed. Actually, in those uh, five countries, already there is four countries that have their team that are ready to be deployed. The rest now is to implement and to maintain those people in the team in a condition to respond, to provide supply to those team. But also the most important is to make sure that when somebody is leaving, they will be able to be replaced by other competent people so the team will still be sustainable and along the time. Five countries is not 47. We now have now 42 countries to go. And uh, we have started uh, to go for scoping mission on those 42 countries. As I'm talking, there is a team in Namibia and there is a team that is going next week to Congo. And all 17 countries will be visited by the end of this year. And in 2023, the rest of the 47 countries will be visited. We have the capacity to support the country for the first year, the second, the third, and the three years. The country has shown commitment to participate to the ongoing uh, operation. Some country will be able to fund it all, or the country will not be able to do it. And we are expecting global collaboration in order to make sure that everywhere it is safe, because the world will be safe only when everywhere is safe.
1: Well, that was going to be my next question. I mean, it sounds like you have some key political buy-in, I mean, as demonstrated by the fact that all these health ministers from most African countries signed on to it. And it sounds like there is the political will in many of the countries in which you are, as you said, sort of piloting this project. But presumably, as you just said, there are certain countries, certain governments, certain regions that are unable to fully fund this themselves. Is there a specific price tag that you're looking the international community to fill to step up?
0: Actually, when we do the initial assessment of this strategy, it is about four billion dollars a year. In five years it's gonna come up with twenty billion dollars. There is a global strategy, first the WHO Director General, call for ten recommendations in order to improve health emergency in the world. And those ten recommendations, when one that is sustainable financing at the global level, there is in the process a collaboration between World Bank and WHO to create a funding that will be helping developing country to implement the ten recommendation of the Director General. The strategy that we have developed in Africa is completely aligned to those ten recommendations, and this effort that are being doing on the global level already beginning, but it will not be enough. For example, the fifth, which is uh, the funding that is being discussed between TAPJSO and World Bank, is aiming to have $10.5 billion, which is not for the whole world, it's not for Africa. And also in Africa, it's gonna have some countries that may not have what they need. It is just seed money, and I hope that uh, it's gonna be a global commitment in order to support all countries in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like it would be an act of self-interest if the global north or wealthier countries or donor countries were able to step up and provide that kind of funding and support for health emergency preparedness and response You know, in Africa itself, I mean, you look no further than monkeypox, which was endemic in only just like a couple of African countries. And now it is a health emergency around the world. And presumably, if these systems were in place earlier, something like monkeypox could have been stopped at its source.
0: You are absolutely right. And uh, before WHO, I was working for U.S. CDC and was part of the team that were testing the smallpox vaccine into monkeypox in DR Congo. I'm from the domain, so I know pretty good what is happening. But at that time, you tell me that monkeypox will be such a global issue today, I would not believe it. And I think there is hundreds of other issues that may be a global issue, but we don't know it yet. The only way for us to be better prepared is to support the countries and also even the subnational level to be ready to respond to their own emergency before it becomes national. And before it become international, and it is not uh, very costly when we know that covid nineteen have cost trillions of dollars to the world when you do investment, we are just asking for less than one percent of what it would cost, and it is really self explanatory and no brain decision that should be made
1: yeah I mean disease outbreak surveillance and health systems strengthening and you know all that is needed to stop a infectious disease at its source? I I mean, it seems like it should be the first option when it comes to international efforts to stop the next pandemic from emerging.
0: Yeah, the surveillance is one of the most important part because it is 717, as we put as a criteria and target. We, between the Starting of an outbreak and the detection, seven days is a maximum. Between the detection and the notification, one day is a maximum. Between the notification and the time to put in place an effective response, seven days is a maximum. And surveillance is, that's where everything starts. Today in Africa, we have a lot of experience in surveillance. In Africa, before COVID, the Average time is eight days between when the outbreak is starting and when it is detected. Eight days and seven are not very far away, but we need to maintain it. We need also to adapt it to the real uh, situation. The surveillance that we are doing in Africa, in many countries, it is still mostly paper-based. The electronic uh, opportunities are not fully used. The opportunity also to use smartphones and all those software that exists now, are not used And also, there is a huge source of information in the social media, in the news that we are trying to use, but more and more we are going, it becomes almost impossible with this level of resources that we have. Give you just an example. Three years ago, we were reading, on average, 2,000 news per week in order to detect. One year later, it became 3,000 news. Today we are at 6,000 news. I don't have enough staff to do that. I need support technologically to do natural language processing, to do artificial intelligence, and we don't have those expertise. And those who have it could help us, and we going to win, and they're going to win. Because once we use it for our surveillance, maybe we will not have this economic situation in the future.
1: So looking forward, assuming that this strategy is fully operationalized, Could you walk me through an example of how it might work and and a disease outbreak it might prevent? Just maybe add some color, add an example of how you see this strategy once implemented working throughout the continent for the benefit of the entire planet.
0: Usually, you don't need to go very far away to see it. There is an Ebola case that happened in a very remote area in country X. A health workers that uh, receive the patient is trained and is able to have a suspicion of Ebola very early. They will report it to the district surveillance officer, who will immediately report it to the International Health Regulation, POC, at country level. When they do it, maybe that country has never had a case of Ebola like what happened in Guinea back in 2014. And WHO is is aware of it. We have reserved of uh, testing for Ebola. In 24 hours, we are able to send it to the country to confirm the case of Ebola. And there is the country that already have a team of responders that were trained, that benefited from several simulation exercise that could be deployed 24 to 48 hours where it happened. When it happened, the first thing they're going to do is to do an investigation and identify the contact, and those contacts will be traced for 24 days. And those contacts, we can't avoid the disease for them because they already have done the contact, and that's the contact that are bringing the disease. But when we are doing contact tracing, it is for the second level of contact that those we are trying to prevent. So, what we're going to do, as soon as we identify, let's say, 40 contacts, we have around 180 contact of contacts. The 180 contact of contact, we need just 200 dose of vaccine against Ebola, and we're going to vaccinate them. And the contact, we're going to follow them for 24 days and taking their temperature and making a very rapid clinical examination. And if there is any symptom that can be related to Ebola, they will be isolated and tested. Should they have been positive, they will not be transmitting into the next contact of contact because those are already vaccinated. Usually we're going to stop the outbreak of Ebola with two or three cases maximum. Should we do not have those investments, that case will probably die without treatment. And the contact of those cases that may be three to four, they're going to have five cases that may travel and go um, in 24 hours, they can go everywhere in the world. And those people will be able to close hospitals or maybe closing business that can cost them billions of dollars. What we are asking them now is just a matter of uh, some uh, funding in order to complement what the African government are really willing to put now. Because when we visited them, all of them were saying, yeah, we are ready to pay for it. If they have it, they're going to put it. And what we need is just a complementary form to make in place this strategy.
1: And $4 billion is not a huge sum of money when spread across many potential donors.
0: Absolutely, and it is around $3 per person. Those people that are gonna be protected by those $4 billion is close to $3 per person. The people themselves have a way and a willingness to participate. Their government also has the willingness to participate. billion, if everybody put their contribution on it, is feasible. So I
1: guess lastly, we've known for a long time that pandemic preparedness and response around the world depends really heavily on health systems in Africa, just considering the history of of things from AIDS to monkeypox to a number of vaccine-preventable illnesses that are still endemic in many African countries. Why hasn't this investment been made until now?
0: I do believe that there's a lot of investment that was done. We always can say it was not enough. The biggest issue also is in terms of coordination of those investments and aligning those investments that what it is needed. WHO that is, I think the global institution that all countries decided to put in place did not have enough funding and did not have predictable funding. Only 20% of WHO budget is provided by countries and the 80% are provided by donor. It is voluntary donor and mostly it come with some condition and it comes with an orientation on where WHO should invest it. In. So even though globally, the funding that were arriving for the global health, for the health system, for the emergency were enough, there is some part of the health system that received more funding that they needed really and some part of the health system that needed more funding did not receive. And I think the world should work better together and also to give more authority to WHO and more funding and predictable funding to WHO. And WHO also should adapt slightly in some part to the real life. And I'm sure it is being done with the lesson learned from COVID.
1: Uh, Well, Dr. Salam, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have any questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Please rate and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts.